pray together. Father, we are grateful that we can sing. And Lord, we are grateful that you have given us inexhaustible things to sing about. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for the grace that in your love you have seen our fallen condition, you have seen our rebellious hearts, and Lord, you have taken action to transform us. Lord, Jesus Christ has come and he has died on the cross, risen from the dead to give us new life, to capture our hearts. Lord, to tune our hearts to sing your praises. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can sing of your beautiful truths that you've given to us in the scriptures. Lord, I pray this morning that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand your truth. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be work in us to, to understand the significance of the passage we'll be studying this morning and then help us to apply it. Lord, stir our hearts this morning as we open up your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, the kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. And if the rest of you will open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. Uh, this morning, we are in Mark chapter 10. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible close to you. Um, our passage this morning is on page 846 in your pew Bible. So encourage you to follow along with me as we uh, work through this text. Um, as we, this morning, we are in the book of Mark. And over the past couple months, we've been on a mini-series studying some of the primary focuses that God wants us to have as a church. Uh, We've been spending time talking about faithfulness in the area of prayer, evangelism, and discipling. And so we have spent time focusing on that. That's going to continue to be a focus of ours um, for the foreseeable future. And uh, so we can keep sharp on that. But as we return to the book of Mark, just a reminder about what the book of Mark, the big theme is, Um, On the screen, we have a picture that captures the theme of the book of M and Ark, right? So the book of Mark. And the theme in the book of Mark is in a picture, we have an aardvark, and we have an ant on a platter being served by a waiter. And so the theme of the book of M, Ark, or Mark, is that presents Jesus as a servant. Serve ant. Get it? Okay. Okay. No, no, it's not, not that funny when I have to make sure you kind of laugh with it. But, but it is helpful because, if, so let's just back up. So what's the theme of the book of Mark? All right, okay, it works, right? Maybe corny, but it works. Well, this morning, our, the message this morning that we're talking about is, a tie, I've titled it, Open Hands and Open Arms. As I begin this morning, I want you to go to the grocery store with me, all right? We've gone to Kroger this morning, and we have... Uh, uh, gone through the aisles and found the things that we couldn't find and we finally have our cart full we check out we go to the car we have all of our bags in the car we get home and uh, we get home and our desire is to be efficient and so we are figuring out how are we going to get all these groceries into the house in one trip so we got the bags right say we're putting bags up our arm right got them up the arm got them up the other arm arms are full i've got the two loaves of bread that are these precious i mean we can't get the bread crushed right so my arms are full and i figure out how to get the bread in my arms too and then i've got the gallon of milk and the gallon of orange juice i'm ready i've got it all success so i'm out of the car walking into the back door and i get to the back door oh how am i going to open the door right so i kick the door a little bit hoping somebody will come and open it kick it nobody comes of course 
right? So kicking again, no, but the dog's at the door. The dog doesn't help. So what do I have to do? I've got a problem. I want to get into the house. I want to be efficient. I want to do this the way that I've planned. I can't get into the house. So what do I have to do? Well, you know, I've got to put something down. I don't want to, though, because I'm going to have to come back and get it, right? Or bend back. And I just don't want to do that because if I bend over like this, what happens to all the stuff on my arms? It's all sliding down. And so I put the milk down, all slides off, and I'm like, oh, that's a mess. And I open the door and I have to come back and make another trip anyway. Not very efficient, right? I share that with you this morning because in our passage, we're going to see that Jesus is telling us the relationship with him requires us to come to him with empty hands. For us to be received by Jesus with open arms, we must come with empty hands. We're going to see that in our passage in Mark chapter 10 as Jesus is interacting with his disciples and some children and then as he's talking to this, uh, this guy that has a bunch of possessions who's eager to come to, to come to Jesus. And so let's look at our passage this morning in chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 13. It says, And when they, these are parents, are bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, and his disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to them, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, not, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. 
As we look at how this passage ends, it ends by those who are first will be last and the last will be first. I believe that's an indication that verse 13, when he's talking about children who are considered the last, are told that if we come to Jesus as children, that we will be received by him. And so this is all fits together. The last are the children, the first are the wealthy, and who have prime and privilege, they're going to be last. That Jesus is turning everything upside down. And so let's look at our passage in verse 13. We have these children, and these uh, children are being brought to Jesus, and Jesus is welcoming them. And then the first point we see this morning is that Jesus is inviting us to come to him like children, that we come to. That's his desire. Jesus has become incredibly popular. He has been teaching with authority. He's been healing with power. He's been confronting the religious leaders with truth. He's calling people to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. The people are beginning to realize that there's something special about Jesus, that he's, he's, he's a significant teacher, that he's from God, and maybe even he's the Messiah. And the parents, they're eager. They're eager to see this about Jesus. And so if he's who he, we think he is, they want their kids close so that he will bless their kids. And so they, the kids are coming, and they're coming to Jesus, but it says at the end of verse 13, his disciples rebuked him. And the disciples rebuked these kids and these parents. And, and the idea is, like, listen, everybody, Jesus has important work to do. I mean, he has important things that he needs to be focusing on. There's stuff he needs to be teaching. There are people he needs to be having meetings with. There are things that he, he has to be doing. And all of these kids, and that, they're just a distraction, I mean, these kids can do nothing for Jesus, so, so get these kids out of here. And watch Jesus' response. And Jesus, when, verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. And in this situation, Jesus is indignant. He is, he is angry that he is frustrated. He is, uh, he, his temperature is heating up because of their re- keeping these kids from him. And it's clear that the disciples have a different agenda than Jesus does. Jesus says, let them come. But there are people hindering them. And as, as, I, as I'm studying this passage this week, that idea, Jesus says, do not hinder them. It made me think a little bit about, are there ways that we can maybe unknowingly be hindering people from coming to Jesus? Now, way, things that we might be doing that, that, that we just aren't aware of, and in, in a sense that we would face Jesus' indignation. Because we see that Jesus is indignant towards those who make it hard to come to him. And how might we do that? Well, I wonder if we might do that the way we treat somebody who doesn't look like us. Maybe they have a different skin color. Maybe they speak with, a diff- with an accent that we're not familiar with. Maybe they don't dress like us. Maybe they're not as clean as we are. Maybe they're all marked up with tattoos. Maybe we know some things about their past and we can't get past their past. And so there's a distance that we're hindering them from coming to Christ. Maybe we can communicate unknowingly that we communicate we've got it all together. That we're really not real honest with our own struggles and the things that are going on in our lives. And we kind of communicate that we have it all together so they don't feel like they fit here. Could that keep people from Jesus? 
you know, maybe their life is really messy. You know, we're looking at them and we see their mess and maybe they've, you know, they, they're, we just, they, we talk to them a little bit and they've got all kinds of problems and the mess that their life is in and maybe we've decided, listen, hey, thanks for coming and we just move on because they're really not interested in investing in this kind of a messy life. Or maybe sometimes we hinder people from coming to Jesus just because we just don't care. Maybe we just don't care if they come to him or not. Maybe they come into church and they're sitting in your pew. And you like to sit by the aisle because if you sit, don't get to sit by the aisle, you have to move all the way in and then people can climb over you or whatever. And so somebody comes and says, hey, you're in my pew. Now, we don't say that. But recognize we're in our spot and somebody, we show up and somebody's there. Because how many of you are sitting where you always sit? You have to raise your hand. I'm looking. I, I know where everybody is, right? And because um, we just have it. And so I, I think even with that, sometimes we just, even how we come to church sometimes. I mean, we, how many of you park in similar places? And when you come into the building, you, there are certain things that you do and you get your bullets in a certain place. Maybe you stop and get some coffee. You talk to the certain people and you come and you sit where you always sit. And there's somebody maybe that you're not familiar with and they're new here that, that maybe not intentionally we ignore them, but because of our routine and because of we're just doing our thing that, that we just, we're just blind to them. And they sit alone in the church and they, maybe some people said hello to them, but nobody really seemed to really care that they were there or not. I'm just burdened by wondering sometimes, do we make it hard for others to come to Jesus because we're just so committed to our own routines and our own ways of, of thinking that we don't open our eyes to look around and demonstrate a real care and compassion for others. And we see Jesus in this. He rebukes his. He's on his disciples. He's indignant towards that because he says, let them come. Don't do these things that would hinder them. Well, as Jesus then in our passage, he commends, he says, let them come. Do not hinder them for such belong the kingdom of God. And this idea, kingdom of God, shows up a few more times in our passage. It's two times here. In verse 14, it says kingdom of God. Verse 15, it says whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He he says this idea a little lower down. If we go down to verse 23, Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 24, Jesus says in that passage, he says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so five times in this passage, he's talking about kingdom of God. So it's obviously, this is an important part of what this whole passage is about, this kingdom of God and entrance into it. Other ideas that are tied to this kingdom of God, in verse 17, it says that when Jesus is setting out, a man runs up to him and asks, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, kingdom of God, an idea here, eternal life. And then look on a little further at the end of verse, um, at the end of verse 21. 
Jesus tells this man, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And so these ideas, kingdom of God, eternal life, treasure in heaven, he is talking about this, this future, this, this future that's a brighter day that is available to us. That's an entrance is, that, that there's an entrance to this kingdom of God that we can inherit eternal life, that we can receive these treasures in heaven. And so there's these grand promises that are out there for us. And then Jesus is saying to his disciples here that we have to come and receive this as, we have to receive this as a child. Because the idea is that eternal life, treasure in heaven, kingdom of God are things we don't have now. That, that, that we have to receive it, we have to enter into it, we have to, we, we, we have to inherit it, we have to, there's something, a way to get it. And we think, well, why is that? Well, the reason is, if we're understanding the Bible and what it's teaching us, is that because when God made us, He made us to be, to be citizens of His kingdom, to be His children, to be His, His beloved family. And yet, what have we done? The Scriptures teach us that all we like sheep have gone astray. That Jesus is the King. God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we have decided, ah, no, you know what? God, appreciate all the good things you've done. It's wonderful. Thanks so much. i got some things I want to do. And we go astray and we end up being these little mini kings and queens. We want to rule our own lives. We want to do what we want to do. And, and in the context, if you're here on a Sunday morning in church, it's not like, well, I'm like thumbing my nose at God. I don't want to have anything to do with God. No, we're grateful to God. We're thankful for the things God does. But frankly, I have some things I want to do too. And so I, I cast off this crown of God being my king, and I put on my little tiny crown that says I'm going to be king of my own life. And we all like that because as we've shared on a number of occasions, we think about little kids and we see that little kids express this early. What's the little phrase that kids do? One little kid's telling another one what to do. What do they say? You're not the boss of me. What is our heart? Our heart says, I don't want anybody to be the boss of me. I want to do what I want to do. If I'm in trouble and... Um, Tell them a lie can get me out of it. I don't want to be anybody the boss of me and tell me not to lie. I want to get out of it. So I lie. And we recognize that from our earliest days that, that we are these little kings and queens and that we are all pursuing the advancement of our kingdoms. We want to build our kingdoms. I want status. I want significance. I want comfort. I want security. I want my life to be a certain way. And so I'm going to orchestrate it so that it will work out my way in rebellion against the king of kings. And I live that way and I seek to rule my own life. And yet, as I begin to do that for a while, I start to realize this gets kind of messy. Because there's some guilt associated with that because I know some of the things I'm doing aren't right. There's some shame involved. Sometimes things just get hard. I'm making choices, and as I make these choices, life's getting harder and life gets darker. But I think I got it figured out. And so I continue on that path. And so I end up, I'm separated from God. This, this kingdom of God, this eternal life, this treasure in heaven, I'm separated from that. 
And more than those things, I'm separated from God. Isaiah 59.2 says this, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. We're separated from the kingdom of God. We're separated from eternal life. We're separated from treasure in heaven. We're separated from God because of our sins. And as we consider that, our relationship is broken with God and we're unacceptable to Him on our own. We're unacceptable. And so, so we think, well, how do I get back? What do I need to do to, to come to God and to, to have Him? And so we come up with all kinds of ideas. And in many ways, we go to the religious shopping store and we push in our cart down the aisle and think, I'll take a little bit of this, I'll take a little bit of this, I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of Eastern religion, a little bit of good works, a little bit of Bible memory, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of that. Got my cart full and I'm pushing my cart up to the door of heaven and says, here I am. Okay? And I've got my hands full of my righteousness, hands full of my own independence, and, and God's saying, you don't fit through this door. This door's narrow. There's only one way through this. And Jesus describes it. He says, Let the children come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. And how do kids enter? How do kids do it? They come with nothing to offer. Think about those of you who have, who have little bitty kids. What do little bitty kids bring into the world? Nothing, right? What, what, do they, what, what do they give to you? I mean, we get recognized joy in some of those things, but it's, it's, you know, it's, they're four weeks old and you haven't slept for four weeks. What are they giving you? Nothing but misery, Right? man, that kid's cute, and people come over and tell me how cute it is, but I'm exhausted, and this, this is killing me, right? And as we think about what do kids offer, they, ha- they bring nothing to the table. They can, they can contribute nothing. I mean, you, you have these kids, and you think, this is going to be great, and you realize, they're costing me a lot of money, right? And so what do we do with kids? We give and give and give because they can't contribute. But what does Jesus say? I love these kids. That's the kind of people I love. I love the people who know that they cannot contribute anything to me. That they realize that their righteousness, that their works, that their sufficiency, it's all, none of it works that come to Him. The only thing they're bringing is, frankly, is their sin and realizing, I don't deserve to even come to you, God. And then God says, you're right, you don't. What do you bring? And I like open up my pockets and I got nothing. I got nothing. Nothing but Jesus. And the doors open. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome to eternal life. Welcome to treasure in heaven. You've brought nothing and you receive everything. That's what it means to be a child. And God's calling us to that. Well, as we continue in our passage, it says, it transitions now to this guy who runs up to Jesus. And we read in our passage, this guy's got a lot of money, he's wealthy. Another other gospels would tell us that he had a he was a position he was a person of position that he was a ruler, and so this guy comes up to him and now we see the contrast we see a child here who has nothing to contribute and now we have a grown man who has wealth and has a lot to contribute, 
And he comes up to Jesus, he runs up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, he kneels down before him and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As we look at this, we realize this guy's on, he's spot on. Good teacher, he recognizes Jesus is good. Actually, Jesus says to him in verse 18, Why do you call me good? There is no, there, no one is good except God alone. So in some ways, this guy's got it right. Right? He knows Jesus is a good teacher. He's probably saying more than he actually knows because Jesus is God. But he comes to him and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it sounds like he's coming like a child. He's coming. What do I need to do to get this? What, what do I need to do? And as I, I listened to that, I, I, a couple things challenged me. One is, um, I've never had that happen to me. Have you ever had anybody run up to you and say, tell me what I need to do to receive eternal life? Tell me how to be rescued from hell and to, to go to heaven. I've never had anybody ask me that that directly. Has any, any, of, any of you? Maybe, maybe one or two of you, maybe. I say that because I'm burdened oftentimes when we think about, we spent some time a few weeks ago talking about evangelism. And oftentimes I hear people just like us, believers that say, you know what, my method of evangelism is I'm going to live my life in such a way that is distinct from others, that it's a godly life, and because I live that way, then other people, when they come and ask me about it, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And my question for you is, how many opportunities has that created? Almost none. You see, because Jesus does not tell us to wait and explain he tells us to go and tell, right? So, so we recognize that we, this, this idea that, you know, that, man, I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm just going to be such a people are going to run up to me all the time saying, what do I have to do to have eternal life? I walk into the gas station, the guy behind the counter says, hey, you're a great guy. I've been watching your life for months. You come in here, always pay. You're friendly to people. What do I have to do to get eternal life? It doesn't happen. We've got to go and tell. So, Jesus, this guy runs up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit? Well, let me pause one more thing. Let's suppose somebody did run up to you and said that. Okay, here's the next question. What would you say to them? Let me turn that around. Let's suppose they didn't run up to you. Maybe somebody, let's say at the end of the church service today, somebody runs up front and they said, Pastor, I get it. Good teacher. I'll pat myself on the back. Good teacher. I said, there's nothing good but God. But what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And I, I'm like, man, I'm supposed to have lunch with somebody. I've got to go. And I say, and I call your name. I said, come on up here and explain this to him. You ready to go? You think, yeah, okay. I, I, I'm, I, could, I could do that. I would explain them to the gospel. I could walk them through the outline of the gospel, help them understand who God is, who we are, what God should do to us, what he's done instead to Jesus, how we have to respond, what difference. I could, I could talk them through that. And so here's a question. Are you there? Now, if not, we've got these cards. We talk about this a lot here, right? These little orange gospel cards has a short outline on the back. So whenever the guy at the gas station does say to you, what do I have to do to be saved? At least you're ready. Now, don't anticipate that happening. But you need to be ready so when you don't wait to explain, when you go and tell, you know what you're speaking about. You're telling them the gospel. Well, move on. So as the man asked Jesus about eternal life, we see this again, this idea of hope, 
that he's, he's wanting this hope of eternal life, hope of the kingdom of God, hope of treasure in heaven, that Mark is walking us to and helping us to understand that this is something that we have to receive from the outside. And it's interesting because, again, Jesus says to the man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 19, Jesus then says, as this guy says, what do I have to do to be, have a, inherit eternal life? Verse 19, you know the commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Okay, he, he gives him a number, these six of the ten commandments he gives this guy. All right, six of them. And uh, he's going through them. And what's the guy's response? And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, this guy thinks he's pretty good. And outward manifestation, I've always honored my mom and dad. I've never told lies. I've never stolen anything, never committed adultery. One thing we could conclude is when this guy's saying, I've done all that, one thing we could say for sure is that he missed the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Because the Sermon on the Mount says, if you've been angry with someone, you've already done what? You've murdered them in your heart. If you've looked at somebody with sexual immorality, you've already committed adultery. So clearly this guy's missed that sermon. But he's like, listen, I haven't done all those things. Check, check, check. Outward, I am spick and, sp- spick and span. I'm clean. And it's, and it's interesting because this is what Paul the Apostle thought of himself before he came to Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, and talking about keeping the law, he says, blameless. Kept the law. Check, check, check. I've earned a bunch of righteousness over my lifetime, so I'm good there. And, and, and then so, look what he says. Jesus, um, in verse 21, and Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, this pause here. This is, I read passages like this, and it tells me how different Jesus is than I am. Because I hear a guy say, okay, here are the commandments. You, you, how many lies you told? I've never told a lie. Ever stolen anything? Nope, never stolen anything. Ever, lo- ever committed adultery? Nope, never even looked at anybody with lust. They're telling me that, that list, and I'm thinking, yeah, right. Come on, you bonehead. You, you know, you're, you're lying to me right now, and I've got this kind of attitude. And it's not a loving attitude, but it says that Jesus, what did Jesus do? Jesus loved him. The compassion of Jesus. He's inviting these people to come to him as children. And he looks at him, he loves him, and he says, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus says, One thing you lack. And he tells him to go sell everything. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and you've got treasure in heaven. Now, if we're not reading this in the context of the rest of the Bible, we could read this as like a work salvation. And the manner in which you get saved, sell everything, give it to the poor, you're going to heaven. That's not what the Bible's teaching. It's not what Jesus is getting at here. Because this guy's thinking, I've kept all these commandments. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. And this one thing that he lacks, Jesus actually captures in the book of Mark in a different place when he, somebody asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God. All of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, love God, and then to love your neighbor. So Jesus says to this guy, you lack one thing. I would argue the one thing this man lacks is love. 
that he doesn't love God because he's not going to sell all my stuff and trust God. I'm not getting rid of my stuff. This stuff, I mean, how am I going to live? So he doesn't love God. But Jesus says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. So not only is he not loving God, he's also not loving other people. He loves, what's he love? He loves his money. And he loves his money very likely because of why we love money. Because money gives us things. Money gives us status. It gives us position. Money makes us comfortable. Money gives us security. Right? Money does all those things for us. And we hold tightly to our money. And Jesus is saying, let go of that. And this guy's like, uh, and what does he do? Look what he says in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is speaking the truth to this man, and this man walks away. He's disheartened and sorrowful. As we think about Jesus and his love, and yet he speaks truth. And this is an important distinction for us in our culture because Jesus loves this guy. And what's the response is Jesus loves him. How's the guy respond? He's disheartened and sorrowful. I'm confident we would look at that in our day and people would say, well, Jesus clearly didn't love that guy. He didn't love that guy because he made him feel bad. He hurt his feelings. He told him that what he was doing in his path wasn't working. And we, listen, we live in a culture where that love equals affirmation. And love equals just telling me what I want to hear. Because if you tell me something that I don't like, something that hurts me, something that it, it, it goes against what I want, well, you must not love me. You're being hateful. You're being a hater. You're, you're, you're being unreasonable. Because our culture often thinks love is just, hey, pat the head, go on your merry way. Just what this guy was expecting. Jesus, I've done all that. And Jesus says, hey, good boy. You're on your way to heaven. Great. I think that's what love would do. No, it's not what love does. Love speaks truth. He speaks it in truth. And love speaks truth. It does it graciously. And oftentimes when we speak the truth to others, they may become disheartened and sorrowful. But we need to allow that to happen. Because in that disheartened, sorrowful position, we're going to trust God to use His Word and to stir them, hopefully. And hopefully turn them. Well, this incident continues in this. And as this guy says that he is... It's interesting because this guy says, Jesus said there's no one good but God. This guy basically says what? Well, I am. (laughs) You know, I'm good. And... Jesus tells him all this. And what we realize is that Jesus is requiring us to come to him with empty hands. This man is coming to Jesus with his self-righteousness. He is coming to him with self-righteousness. And Jesus is saying to him that you need to surrender. You need to surrender your treasure here. And by surrendering treasure here, you accumulate treasure there. Surrendering treasure here is a response of faith. And my response of faith in selling what I have, giving it to the poor, is a demonstration that I love Jesus and I'm going to live by faith and trust Him to take care of me. And so this man is told that he has to get rid of all the self-righteousness. That self-righteousness isn't good enough. 
And it's interesting because the man, rather than turning from his righteousness and his riches, he turns from Jesus. He had an opportunity, an opportunity to turn and trust Jesus. But he was unwilling to turn from his self-righteousness, his own goodness. He was unwilling to turn from his right riches. And because of that, he turns from Jesus. We look at this, then we realize Jesus then says in verse 23, he explains this, and he's explaining to us what it looks like to come to him as children. We have no righteousness to offer. And he says to us in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it says, and the disciples were amazed at his words. In a minute, it's going to say that they were exceedingly astonished by this idea that rich people don't go to heaven. And they're blown away by that because in their way of thinking, well, if you're rich and if you've got possessions, it's clearly because God's blessed you. You must be doing something right. That's a prosperity gospel in our culture. You know what? God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You have your best life now. And if you have your best life now, God's going to shower you. You're not going to have problems. You're not going to have money issues. God's going to bless you and bless you and bless you. And the disciples, that's where they were coming from. And Jesus says to them that it's difficult for a wealthy person to get to the kingdom of God. And then he explains a little more in verse 23. He says, children. Now, just pause here. The word children is significant here. Who do you say comes to Jesus? We have to come to him as children. How is he addressing his disciples? As children. Okay? And he's saying, you guys have come to me like that. Okay? We'll see that in just a minute. But he's saying, I'm, he addresses them as children because they have come to him as children. Jesus said, follow me. What did they do? They left everything and followed him. So, but he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Now, let's, let's say, what's that mean? Okay, well, it means this. Let's suppose I have a needle in my hand. Okay, and I could, I could tell you I do and you couldn't see it, but let's suppose I do. How big is the hole? Right, I mean, it's like the tiniest hole you can imagine, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old and my, you know, thread a needle. I had a something I need. I was working on the other button or whatever, and I was working on sewing it. And I'm like trying. I had my glasses on, trying to get this in there, and it's not working. I'm putting my glasses on. It doesn't help a whole lot, but it's like this little tiny hole. Okay. And then what's a camel? The camel is the biggest animal that they have in that area. And he said, "Listen, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get to heaven." And you're thinking. When the disciples get it, because there have been, I think like in the 900s, somebody came up with this idea that, well, there's this gate in Israel that's called the eye of the needle, and if the camel got really small and tucked it in, you could kind of get it through there. There's no historical evidence for that. And frankly, that, that, that just destroys the whole idea here. Because what's the disciples' response? He says, they say, who can be saved? Because why? A camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. Right? You, can't get, you can't get a hamster through the eye of a needle, right? I mean, you, it can't fit. It's impossible. And he says, with man, it says this in verse 26, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so the question is, why is it so difficult for rich people 
to get into heaven. It is difficult. Let me let's pause here. We would think of the context of this passage being written, and we think of the context of our world economics. This is us, the wealthy people, every one of us. Every one of us. How many of you have a dresser full of clothes? Probably most of you have so much stuff, you need to take it to goodwill. Right? How many of you have um, in, in, indoor plumbing and you pay for it every month? Internet access. How many of you drove here in a vehicle and you made it? All four tires still on when you made it. We look, I mean, we, we, we are a culture that we buy a $5 coffee at Starbucks. Right? And don't think anything of it. We are a wealthy people. So this isn't talking, this isn't just talking about Bill Gates. Right? It's not just talking about, this is, not, this is talking to us. And why, why is it hard for rich people to get into the heaven? Why is it people like, difficult for us to get into heaven? First of all, because there's a righteousness. We have the self-righteousness that we're unwilling to unload at the door. But also we have a self-sufficiency that we're unwilling to unload. We are self-sufficient, and money allows us to be that way. Okay, right, because what does money give us? Money gives me security, it gives me comfort, it gives me status, it gives me all of these things, it gives me security. And we know that, because how do you feel when your pockets are empty and the, uh, the bank account's really, really low and a bunch of bills are coming? It makes you feel insecure and uncomfortable and stressed and tense. What happens when the bank account's full? No problem. See, money allows us to be self-sufficient. And Jesus is telling us that for us to get through this eye of a needle to enter the kingdom of God, to receive eternal life, that we've got to unload all of that self-sufficiency. And we think, well, what's that look like in our culture? Well, to this rich man, Jesus said, sell everything you have. I'm confident that one of the ways that this looks like in our culture is that, that I, I think God's pattern for giving in the New Testament would be a fantastic example of this. See, because what, does, what do our finances do? We, I earn and earn and earn, and I earn 100% of my income, and what do I do with 100% of my income? I spend it all on me. I, maybe I invest a little bit, I put some in savings and all that, but I'm, live, I'm using it all. I'm given 100%, I consume 100%. What am I? Self-sufficient. I'm not, I'm not demonstrating much trust. What happens whenever I begin to think about what does faithfulness in the realm of finances look like? And we'd read in the Old Testament about tithes and offerings, and we realize in the Old Testament that they, would, they were required to give 10% of their income. And I think a giving of that demonstrates I'm living by faith. I don't have to have everything I want. I'm going to sacrificially give, and I'm going to be faithful in that, and I'm going to demonstrate that I'm not self-sufficient, that I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God to give me a level of security and comfort that I could have if I kept all that. And so we give. Now, in, 10, in the Old Testament, is a 10% tithe, and we say, well, I'm not under the Old Testament law, and we're not. Praise God. We're under grace. And grace is abundant. So much greater than the law. And if that's the case, it's like, well, do I have to give 10% according to the law? And I'd say, well, according, we don't live under the law. 
But has God done for you more than what the Old Testament saints had? Absolutely. So I would say 10% becomes a good starting point. You say, but that's a lot. I don't know how I would do that. Hmm. Maybe it becomes, I don't know how I would do that, but maybe it's an opportunity for me to learn to trust, to not be self-sufficient. You see, we've got to unload this stuff. I've got my bags full of groceries. I've got my hands full of orange juice, and I'm coming to the door of heaven and saying, God, I'm, I, here I am. And he says, what do you got? i got, I got groceries for us. Here am I coming in to heaven. He says, well, I don't need any of that. I've been independent. I've been, well, I've been taking care of myself, patting myself on the back. I did all this stuff. I've achieved all this. I've been independent. Nobody's had to help me the whole life, God. I've done it all myself. And he's like, didn't ask you to do that either. You need to unload that. Unload our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency. And we, when we unload that, that we come to Jesus as children with nothing to offer, He receives us. And we continue to live with Him as children dependent on Him. And so we must let go of our self-righteousness. We must let go of our self-sufficiency. And then Jesus, in verse 28, Peter says to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. They left everything. They did follow him. Remember they left dad in the boat? They left their nets. And Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left all these things behind. They've left their self-righteousness. They've left their self-sufficiency. They've left brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands. For my sake and for the gospel... I've unloaded all the groceries because I want to be a child before God. I unload all of that, he says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. And see, it says, listen, Peter, you have walked away from all these things, but listen, I'm giving you more brothers than you could ever imagine. Look at all these other believers, these brothers in Christ. You have more than you could have ever imagine. Sisters, parents, this body of Christ, I've given you this community. It's more than you ever had before. You're a citizen of a brand new kingdom, brand new land. All of this I'm giving to you because you've surrendered it all to me. And then Jesus then, he closes by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And again, this is a convicting passage in our culture because many of us in our culture were the first. We've got money, we've got cars, we've got vehicles, we pay our bills, we're responsible, and praise God for all those things, wonderful. But the challenge is when we pat ourselves on the back and we're self-sufficient and we're not coming to Him with open hands. We're saying, God, look at all this stuff I did and look at all this stuff that I have. And God says, no, let it all go. Trust me. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And as we understand this promise, Jesus is telling us that in this, that, that we need to be holding tightly. If we let go of everything else, I let go of my self-sufficiency, I let go of my self-righteousness, what do I cling tightly to? I cling tightly to Jesus. Why? Because my hands are empty. 
Okay, now, let's, let's use our grocery illustration, one last picture. So I got my hands full of groceries and the orange juice and the milk and the bread's all in the right place, right? And now, let's suppose Trisha comes out and she's like, glad to see me, because obviously. So I come out, wants me to give her a big hug, right? And, I, and she, said she has her arms open wide to me to give her a hug. What, what, what can I do? I can't come to her like this, can I? To give her a hug and to have her receive me, what has to happen? I've got to let it all go and come as a child. That's the picture of the gospel. That we trust Jesus and Him alone. Not our self-righteousness, not our self-sufficiency, His promises and His word. And so I'd ask you this morning, are you willing to let go of your self-righteousness and your self-sufficiency and trust Jesus? And I would ask you a question, what would that look like practically for you to be trusting Jesus, selling all that you have, giving it? I want to encourage you this morning to examine yourself to see maybe things that you, you may be doing, that we may be doing, that be making it hard for others to come to Christ. That we would not see our Savior be indignant with us. And then I would ask you this morning, do you really love Jesus more than you love your riches and the resources and all that that gives you? Are you willing to let go and to live by faith? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you invite us to come to you as children. Lord, with empty hands and hearts that long for you. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts. God, that you would help us to see how we may be trusting self-righteousness. We may be self-sufficiently and, and not trusting you for our resources, not trusting you for our daily bread. God, help us. Lord, we want to be a people who love you. We want to be a people who are citizens of your kingdom, who inherit eternal life, who have treasures in heaven. So Lord, help us to be a people who live by faith, trusting you alone, coming to you as children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.